0: Thank you, Gary. Wonderful. Well, good evening, and uh, thank you for inviting me back again. So one day you'll get bored of me, but um, I'm very pleased you've still invited me back. It's lovely to, um, to be here this evening and to um, address this subject. I, um, I recently celebrated uh, my 25th anniversary of my ordination, and uh, I had the opportunity to... Um, Uh, preach and celebrate uh, not a million miles away on um, uh, St. Peter's or nearest Sunday to St. Peter's Day and I was just reflecting on 25 years of ministry and one of the things that I I said was that when I was um, ordained 25 years ago, I felt completely inadequate to the task that God had called me to and uh, reflecting on the last 25 years, uh, I said, 25 years on, I still feel completely inadequate to the task that God has called me to. But one of the things I've uh, learnt and am learning more and more over the years is that it's not about us. It's about who we allow God to be in us. And as I was talking about Peter, I was reflecting on, well, why is it that Peter becomes the person on whom Jesus says uh, the church will be built? You remember that great uh, occasion where where Peter recognises that Jesus is the Messiah And uh, Jesus says to Peter, You know, on you you will the church be built. And I was thinking, Well, Peter's just uh, probably in his late teens, he's an uneducated fisherman. What is it about him that makes him become somebody on whom the church can be built? And I was reflecting on the fact there are perhaps two things about Peter, or two things that Peter discovers that means he becomes that person. And there are two things that. Uh, we too can discover. And they're the two things that as we discover them, they become, uh, they make us become, if you like, little rocks on which the church is built. And if uh, Peter is the rock on which the kingdom of God is built, uh, well, God is always trying to build his kingdom on uh, the lives of his people. And the two things that Peter had discovered, uh, obviously, are first of all his relationship with Jesus Christ and his understanding that Jesus was not Not just the Messiah, but the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. But also the second thing that Peter discovers is that uh, Jesus gives to him this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. That means that as Peter lives his life, he realises actually it's not about him. It's not about his education. It's not about his qualifications. It's not about who he is. It's about who God is in him and through him. And uh, there's wonderful liberation in the way that Peter comes to uh, to live his life. One of the things I love about Peter is that he's uh, he 's very raw he 's not the finished article he 's always speaking first and thinking afterwards, and he 's always making mistakes and putting his foot in it, but he 's very enthusiastic and uh, he's enthusiastic about Jesus and he's enthusiastic about what God can do in him and through him. I may have mentioned uh, before i 'm not sure of that wonderful occasion in Acts three where Peter and John go up to the temple. Uh, to pray. And they encounter the crippled beggar and uh, the beggar's expecting money. And Peter says, we haven't got any money, but what I have, I give you. Stand up and walk. And what is it that Peter has discovered that he has? Well, he's discovered that he has a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he has discovered that he has the Holy Spirit and therefore he can do the things that he's seen Jesus do. He's lived alongside Jesus for three years. He's watched Jesus In his ministry, and Peter understands that because of this gift of the Holy Spirit, he can uh, build the kingdom in the way that he's seen Jesus build. And as we meet this evening, we may look at ourselves, we may look at each other and we may think, well, who are we to build the kingdom of God? Well, who is Peter? Who is any of the apostles? Who are any of the disciples? Who are any of the people on which God has built his kingdom? Uh, I remember many years ago, we had a, a faith-sharing team come to uh, church where I did my second curacy up in the northeast in Chesley Street. And there were three couples who came on this team. And uh, over the course of the weekend, they were praying for people and ministering to people and uh, uh, hearing from God and speaking into, into people's lives and praying with great confidence. And partway through the weekend, uh, our folk uh, uh, became aware of the fact that this Couple, they were in their early 20s, I guess, had only been Christians for about six months. And yet here they were uh, ministering with uh, great power and authority and confidence, uh, purely because they had understood that as they came into that relationship with Jesus Christ, they received everything that they needed in order to build the kingdom of God. And in that moment that they received Jesus Christ, they received. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit that would enable them to build God's kingdom. The fruit of the Spirit uh, would grow in them over time. But they understood that the gifts of the Spirit were available to them. And for a number of our folk at the time who had been Christians for many, many years, they were kind of taken aback that here were these sort of newcomers to the faith who were doing things that they'd never dreamed of doing and never dared to do. And they suddenly thought, well, if they can be ministering in this way... Why, why aren't we? What is it that they've discovered that we haven't? And it was just something about this understanding of the fact that as you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and receive that gift of the Holy Spirit, so you receive everything that you need to do to get the job done, to build the kingdom of God. So often we're, we're still waiting. We're waiting to be ready. Uh, We think, well, we need to do another course, or we need to learn more, or we need to be more mature in the faith before, and we we kind of have have this, uh, we think, well, one day I'll be ready to do all those things that I see other people doing. Uh, The reality is if we wait until the day that we are ready, uh, we will never start. Uh, Jesus didn't wait till his disciples were ready before he sent them out on mission. When the disciples were sent out on mission, they didn't even understand who Jesus was. You know, when they're sent out, you know, healing and preaching the kingdom of God, they don't understand that Jesus is the son of God. And yet they're out telling people about the kingdom of God because they've learned something from Jesus. They weren't ready, but Jesus just told them to go and get on with it unless they got on with it. So they learned. So that's all by way of um, just a bit of preamble, really, that we are the ones on whom God will build his kingdom because it's not about us, it's about who we allow god to be in us and through us and the first um really i just want to uh, uh, just see what the bible says about this uh, because uh, we don't really need to go any further than uh, than scripture that's why we have this book because it reminds us of the things that we forget and uh, in this passage from luke uh, chapter 8 uh, 22 to that i'm not going to talk about it in great detail but one of the things that I understand more and more as I read the Gospels is that you see there's um, the Gospels are not put together in a random way. In each of the Gospels, there's very, they're very methodical in the way that they're written. And there's a very clear structure in the way that they're, uh, the way that they're written. And the Gospel writers are very deliberate in the way that they construct their Gospels because there are things that they want the reader to understand. And, uh, Uh, In this this, uh, series of episodes from uh, Luke 8, 22 through to the beginning of chapter 9, there are basically four encounters where Jesus is involved in situations that are are beyond human control. So there's the storm on the lake where the disciples are caught up in a storm that they can't control and they think they're going to drown and then they come to the region of the Gerasenes and there's uh, this uh, demonized man who again is out of control. There's nothing that anybody can do about his situation. Luke makes it very clear that he's been chained hand and foot many times and he just breaks the chains. There's nothing that anybody can do about his situation. Uh, and then on the uh, the uh, on the journey to visit Jairus and his daughter, there's the woman who's been subject to uh, bleeding for 12 years. Again, it's a situation that uh, nothing, there's nothing that anybody can do about her situation. Uh, there's a I know that she's spent all her money on doctors. No one can make any difference to her situation. And then obviously they arrive at Jairus' house and they're too late. Uh, Jairus' daughter has died. There's nothing that anybody can do about that situation. And Luke puts these uh, these um, things one after the other after the other. And each one is sort of worse than the one that precedes it. And the thing that they have in common is that they're all situations that no one can do anything about. They're beyond human control until Jesus arrives. And because Jesus is in the boat on the lake, the storm is calmed. And because Jesus arrives on the shore, uh, the demonized man is set free and is suddenly dressed and in his right mind, and people are amazed. And uh, the woman who has been subject to this uh, bleeding, which is not just for her a physical problem, but it's a spiritual problem because it Cuts her off from her community and it cuts her off from a relationship with God. When Jesus arrives, she is restored, restored to her community, restored to her relationship with God. And when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, uh, the little girl is raised. So these four situations that Luke puts together to illustrate the fact that there's nothing, uh, there's no situation over which Jesus doesn't have authority. And then uh, we go straight into the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what's Luke's purpose in putting these things together? Well, Luke is very deliberate in, in saying, well, look, this these are the things that Jesus does. There is no situation that Jesus walks into over which he doesn't have power and authority. And then guess what? Uh, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles with that same power and authority to go into similar situations and to do the same thing, to bring about the same result, to drive out demons, to cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God, uh, to heal the sick. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about telling people what the kingdom of God looks like, and uh, showing them what it looks like, saying this is what the this is what happens when the kingdom of God breaks into uh, the present time. And the ministry and the mission that he gives to the disciples is exactly the same. And if you go into Luke chapter 10, there are 70, 72 who are sent out to do the same thing. That's the pattern that you see in the Gospels. Jesus exercises this ministry and then he sends out the disciples, the apostles, to continue it. And that's the pattern that we see. And then we come to, uh, uh, to Acts chapter 1, a very familiar, very familiar passage. Let me just uh, read these few verses uh, for you. Uh, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's puzzling or it could be puzzling to think, well, why does Jesus ask ask them to wait You just, uh, you know, remember what they have lived through over the previous uh, few weeks and what they have experienced, particularly thinking about uh, the Easter story. You know, the apostles, right, you know, had this um, great hope and expectation that Jesus was the Messiah that they were expecting, Uh, the Messiah who was going to come and lead a great uprising against the Romans, who was going to liberate Israel from Roman occupation, who was going to establish Israel as, a, as an independent kingdom again, and uh, who was going to defeat all their, their enemies, and they were going to be his kind of cabinet all around them. And then they get to Good Friday, and all their hopes and dreams and aspirations seem to be shattered. Uh, they're despondent, they're disillusioned, it doesn't seem to be working out in a way that they had hoped. The last thing they ever expected was that Jesus would be crucified. And at his death, it seems as if all their, everything they'd hoped for has died with him. And then three days later, suddenly everything changes. And this same Jesus that they've seen crucified is suddenly alive again. And you would think, well, having lived through that experience, the first thing that you would want to do would just be to tell everybody about what you had experienced. That's the nature of good news. When you have some kind of good news, the most natural thing in the world is to want to share that good news with uh, other people. If something amazing happens, you know, the the birth of a baby or or a promotion at work or whatever it happens to be, if you receive good news, you want to share it with people. And uh, there can't be much better news than having watched Jesus die and then having met the resurrected Jesus. And suddenly understanding what has happened, or begin to understand what has happened, but certainly knowing that all your hopes and dreams that you thought had been crushed are actually now alive, but more alive than you ever thought they would be. And yet Jesus says to them, wait, don't rush out and tell everybody. Wait, wait for what? Uh, Wait, because in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? so important? Well, it goes to the heart of the gospel, and it goes to the heart of Christian discipleship, and it goes to the heart of what the church is all about, because what we are about is not communicating information. It's not what the Christian message is about. It's not just an ideology. It's not just a kind of self-help manual. It's not about things that you can uh, you can learn. It's not about, uh, well, if you, if you sort of follow all these rules and instructions, then Uh, life will be the way that it's meant to be. That's not what it's about. It's not about having information that we can, or simply about having information that we can convey to other people. It's about actually having power and authority to change the situations that people find themselves in. It's about having power and authority to actually say to people, "Look, look, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what happens when uh, God is on His throne and recognised as such. I think more than uh, more than ever in the culture and in the society that we uh, that we live in, it's no, it's not enough for us to tell people that Jesus is good news. That doesn't cut any ice with anybody anymore. Simply to say that, uh, well, I know Jesus and Jesus is good news. Uh, what people need to see is. Is that it? Actually, it looks like it looks like good news. I was just at um, a, a missioners' conference a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the Church of England and a number of other partners had just um, uh, commissioned some research into uh, into what people think about uh, Jesus and uh, what they think about Christians and the church. And it's one of the largest um, uh, largest surveys that's uh, ever been commissioned. Uh, comrades uh, did it, and they questioned initially a thousand a thousand people, and then they tweaked it a bit and then they questioned three thousand people so it 's a huge uh, huge survey most um, uh, surveys are about a thousand people, so they questioned completely random survey across the country of people from all different backgrounds and uh, all sorts of different walks of life, and just various questions about what do you think about uh, Jesus and what do you think about Christians and some fascinating things of it's literally just been published last Monday but one of the fascinating things that came out of it one of the questions that people were asked it's a completely random survey of people across the country was uh, and it's an online thing so there's, it's sort of multiple choice you kind of tick which one you think is you most agree with and one of the questions was uh, do you believe that it's a question about the resurrection do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, happened exactly as the Gospels describe. That's not the exact wording. But other that was just the, the question. Do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus took place exactly as the Gospels occurred? So it's a completely random survey of people across the country, and you would think, well, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think the percentage was? What percentage of people do you think agreed with that statement? And then the next one was, um, you think the resurrection of Jesus happened more or less as the Gospels describe, but some things have been changed. But the first one, exactly as the Gospels describe, what percentage of people in the UK do you think tick that box? Anyone like to hazard a guess? 10%. Not eighty percent, not ten, it was twenty-eight per cent. Twenty eight per cent of completely random survey, twenty eight per cent ticked that box. But number of people attending church is between three and five per cent. So that means there are twenty three per cent of the population who do not need convincing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. They ticked a box to say they believe it's a fact as the Bible describes. But what they, what's obviously missing is the relevance of that. They kind of tick the box, say, well, I believe it, but is irrelevant to the way I live my life. So, in terms of thinking about mission and evangelism, uh, so often in mission and evangelism, we're trying to convince people of the truth of something like the Easter story. Well, a quarter of the population don't need convincing about it. They believe it. They tick the box. They just don't understand the relevance of it. Because so often, the way the church looks and the way that Christians look doesn't seem to present anything different from the life that they're already living. We don't look like good news. We don't look like actually there's anything particular going on in our lives that is any different from what's going on in in their lives. And there's something crucial, I think, in this, uh, why Jesus tells the disciples to wait, because actually it's not just about conveying information about history and things that have happened in history and about the life of Jesus, which is all very interesting. But what's the difference? What is the difference that it will make to my life? Where's the relevance for my life? And uh, that's why the disciples are told to wait, because he says uh, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? For what purpose will they receive power? For what purpose is the Holy Spirit given? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, this um, uh, topic of of come Holy Spirit, of, of welcoming the Holy Spirit, having an understanding the Holy Spirit, it's not a it's sort of not an optional extra for sort of lunatic fringe of the church. It's an essential requirement that we have an understanding of the fact that Christian discipleship is about allowing God to flow through us. And about allowing the life of God to flow through us, which is incredibly liberating, because it means actually we don 't need any particular qualifications to be the kind of person that God can use to build his kingdom, as we 'll look at in a uh, in a few moments the um, the qualifications such as they are are really quite simple, and the biggest one of them is simply that we have an an openness to the Holy Spirit and allow him. To work in us. I love the, um, uh, uh, the beginning of, of Luke's gospel when, he, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she is going to uh, give birth to this child who will be the savior of the world. And she immediately objects and kind of has this question, says, well, I'm still a virgin. How can this possibly happen? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will uh, conceive And I love the response that Mary makes at the end of that, given that uh, she would have understood very clearly the implications of being found pregnant and not married and all that that would have meant for her. And her response is, uh, well, let it be to me as you have said. Let it be to me as you have said. And the angel gave this incredible life-changing message and said, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And Mary has to I think, cooperate in that. Mary has to have a, a wonderful openness to God and a wonderful openness to the Holy Spirit. Uh, she could have had, you know, she does object, but she could have just put her foot down and said, you know, no way, and it's, this is just impossible. This is not going to happen to me. But she says, let it be to me as you have said. And I think one of the one of the things that I've learned over the years and I'm still learning is that, one of the the keys to discipleship is to say to the Lord, "Let it be to me as you have said." Let it be to me as you have said. It's all about whatever God wants. And uh, there's a there's a real battle in there because we have a as human beings we have a very independent spirit in us. We have hearts that are wired from birth to be independent from God. And uh, even when we surrender our lives to God. Uh, there's a journey of continually surrendering that independence. But I love, that I always coveted that attitude in Mary where she says, let it be to me as you have said. And again, uh, who's Mary? She's just a, a poor young girl. But because of her openness to the Holy Spirit, the whole world is changed. And it's when we are open to the Holy Spirit that we can change Uh, the lives of those around us. And we can be those through whom the kingdom of God comes. Let me just turn to this uh, testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians when he's writing to the church in Corinth. And uh, when you remember who, um, Paul is very self-effacing when you uh, remember his, you think about his letters and uh, the richness of his letters. I remember a couple of years ago hearing um, uh, Tom... Right, being interviewed, a uh, great New Testament scholar. And one of the questions he was asked in the interview was why he believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. You know, what was one of the reasons he believed that uh, it was the inspired word of God? And he just uh, held Paul's letters in his Bible. He just held them between his fingers. And he said, uh, the richness and the wisdom and the depth of what is written in these pages is so profound that it must be inspired by God. And so when you remember uh, that, uh, Paul is very self-effacing when he writes in this uh, letter to the church at Corinth, uh, and he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And you kind of think, well, what do we, you know, when we read Paul's letters, what do we think? We think, well, it's wise and persuasive words. He says, well, when I came to you, we're not with wise and persuasive words, uh, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul, even in his, um, uh, in his ministry and in his writing uh, and in his preaching, he's wanting to point people to the transforming power of God, not to his... Eloquence and not to the wisdom of what he's saying, not even to his uh, to his argument, although that's what we remember paul for he's saying he, he wants to point people beyond that he doesn 't want people to think this is just this is just a good message, this is just intelligent thought, this is just a good ideology that can change your life he's wanting to point people to the kingdom of God to uh, to the kingdom of God, in which people can begin to live even in this life, that will transform their lives. Because you cannot change your heart and you cannot change the way that you live in the way that you need to simply by thinking about it. I remember as a a, a young teenager becoming aware of the fact that uh, I needed to uh, live a better life than I was and trying in my own effort to Changed the life that I was living at the time and failing miserably. Uh, one of the issues that I became aware of was the language that I used was, uh, rather colorful in those days. And, uh, I became rather uncomfortable with that. And I thought, well, I need to stop using that language. And, uh, I remember th- giving myself a week to stop swearing. And I thought well, when I've stopped swearing, then I will, uh, tackle some other areas of my life. So I'll go for the easy stuff first. And, uh, I think I gave up after about two hours uh, because I realised actually I was not capable of stopping using the words. They kind of be out before I could think not to use them. And uh, and then some years later, when I made a commitment to Christ and surrendered my life to Christ and invited uh, Jesus by His Holy Spirit to uh, live within me without trying. One of the things that I noticed in the days following that decision was that i had stopped swearing and i hadn't even thought hadn't even thought to do it and it was something that god had changed in me and uh, for me it was one of the evidences that god had indeed come into my life because when i invited him there were no um, i was just on my own i had that little journey into life booklet by norman warren and i was sat on the edge of my bed uh, all on my own and i just read that booklet and i prayed the little prayer at the back of it and so, well, Jesus, if this is true, if you died for me, if if this is all true that I've read, then I want to live the rest of my life for you. But there was no nobody to pray for me. There were no kind of flashing lights, no claps of thunder. It was all very ordinary. Uh, but I knew that God had come into my life because suddenly he started to change things in me that I'd not been able to change in myself because that's the transforming power of the gospel. It's not just... Uh, good news to think about it's good news that actually makes a difference so in everything that we that we do and that we're uh, preaching and teaching and trying to demonstrate it's all pointing beyond ourselves to the god who created us and the god who loves us and the god who wants us to be in relationship with him because at the end of the day that's what the gospel is about it's a saving message because people need to be saved and uh, one of the things that um The gospel and the book of Acts is very clear about is that one of the things that stirs people's hunger for God is seeing the difference that God makes. If you read through the book of Acts, which I'm sure you have done so often, uh, the opportunities to tell people about the good news of Jesus come off the back of Holy Spirit ministry. They come off the back of someone being delivered or off the back of somebody being healed because when those things happen... People want to know, well, how did that happen? Uh, you remember the, the occasions when, um, you know, Paul does stuff and uh, people think, well, you must be a God, we want to worship you. But well, we no, 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 it's nothing, it's not me. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. When people see the kingdom of God, that it stirs their, uh, their thirst. You know, when I was here uh, uh, the other month talking about mission and evangelism, this is so tied up together because it's when people see the kingdom of God that it stirs their hearts to think about God and hunger after God and that's Paul's testimony it's not just good preaching not just wise and persuasive words but a demonstration of the spirit's power he's saying to the corinthians you know that's what you saw that's what made you thirsty that's why there's a church which is now fighting and falling out and we need to kind of fix it all up again but that's how it began so I want to think about some of the things that uh, prevent the holy spirit flowing in us and through us because as you'll see the new testament talks about four different responses that we can make uh, to the holy spirit and I want to just think about these uh, this evening uh, because so often we uh, so often we pray come holy spirit uh, without particularly thinking about Uh, what we're doing or what we are asking for. And uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, Paul writes uh, this. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, The Holy Spirit loves to dwell in us, and the Holy Spirit loves to dwell in the life of the church. And uh, one of the things that I long for as I lead a church is that my My church community will be a place where where the Holy Spirit loves to dwell and where the Holy Spirit will be evident. But one of the images that's used, as you know, for the Holy Spirit is that of of a dove. And doves are incredibly uh, kind of uh, flighty birds. They don't hang around much if they're disturbed. They will very easily fly off. And one of the things that the One of the things that we have to remember is that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And he loves to dwell in a place where there is holiness. And he loves to dwell in a place where uh, our heart's desire is to be a people who are holy. And uh, if we are serious about inviting the Holy Spirit to minister in us and through us, then one of the things that we have to be most passionate about is that we are relentless and resolute in pursuing lives of holiness that we are allowing god to search our lives we're allowing god to search our hearts that we don't tolerate uh, sin in our lives that we don't tolerate compromise uh, with the kingdom of god i love the um uh, the uh, the book of common prayer confession in the communion which uh, I'll probably not be able to remember the uh, the exact words uh, in the, but if you're familiar with the confession in the Book of Common Prayer communion, where it talks about our, you know, manifold sins that are you know grievous, and basically they are, our hearts are we're heartbroken because of our sin, because it spoils our relationship with God, and uh, we need to have that kind of of attitude if we really want the Holy Spirit to be ministering in us and through us. Uh, you know, that's the context in which Paul is right, is get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. If you entertain those things, if you entertain unforgiveness, well, the Holy Spirit will find it hard to dwell in that kind of context. Uh, we need to keep, as we often remind ourselves, short accounts with God. Yes, we're always making mistakes. We're always getting things wrong. We know the love and the forgiveness of God and of Jesus Christ. But it's easy to fall into compromise. It's always to fall into that place where we we put up with things that we know we shouldn't be putting up with. It's easy to become complacent. Well Paul says if we do that we grieve. We grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we grieve the Holy Spirit, then uh, like the dove who is disturbed he 'll leave, so we need to allow ourselves to be challenged and allow God to search our hearts and uh, and also because if you um, uh, if you resolutely pursue Jesus Christ in this way and resolutely pursue serving him in this way, you open yourself up more and more to attack from the devil and uh, the devil is uh, i think in i think i think the devil is lazy in the respect that uh, he he'll, he'll go for easy targets and if there are areas of compromise in our lives and if there's sin that we are entertaining uh, the devil will always seek to exploit those areas uh, he you know why um Uh, push a rock up a hill, if you can just push it off the top of the hill. And so uh, it's another reason why we must keep short accounts with God, that the more we're pressing into the kingdom of God, the more the devil will seek to discourage us and dissuade us and take us out of the fight. Uh, He doesn't like it when we are uh, building the kingdom of God. And so it's so important that uh, We're getting rid of all this stuff that Paul describes, not simply that uh, the Holy Spirit will dwell in us, but also so that we remove those things that Satan will seek to exploit in us, to discourage us and to take us out of the battle. So we mustn't grieve the Holy Spirit. But uh, in Acts chapter 7 verse 51, we read that a second response to the Holy Spirit is that we can resist him. Uh, It's in the context of Stephen's speech uh, to the Jews who are about to stone him. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And uh, we can find ourselves in a place of resisting the Holy Spirit. And uh, we can resist the Holy Spirit because uh, he doesn't suit our agenda or fit in with our expectations. Uh, one of the reasons, you know, Stephen is about to be stoned and the, the Jews who are surrounding him hate what he's saying because he doesn't, f- what he's saying doesn't fit with their expectations. And I said before, one of the, uh, one of the things that we have as human beings is that we're born with hearts that are wired to be independent of God. We're born with hearts that long, uh, they're sort of wired for self-sufficiency. And yet when we come to Jesus Christ, we have to surrender that independence. We have to surrender that self-sufficiency. But that is a lifelong journey because all the time, at least maybe it's just me, uh, all the time I'm trying to wrest control uh, back from God because being out of control uh, feels very scary. Uh, We like to be in control of our lives. We like to be in control of situations. At least I do. I hate it uh, when I'm not in control of my life and what's going on uh, around me. And uh, as some of you know, I'm in a a kind of situation at the moment where uh, everything in my life is out of control. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. But sometimes God puts you in these places uh, in order to teach you that he is in control. And when you're not in control, that doesn't actually matter because um, he is in control and he has a, a love for us and a faithfulness towards us. And sometimes in these seasons, it's all about learning about that. But I hate being out of control. I was um, uh, went to boarding school. One of the things that you learn at boarding school is how to be incredibly self-sufficient and controlling of your environment. And it's very difficult to unlearn uh, those lessons. And so uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit will want to uh, push me in a direction, or do, and, I, and I sort of put my foot down and say no because I don't want to go in that direction, and it's taking me out of my comfort zone. And we don't like being taken out of our comfort zones, and so we can end up resisting the Holy Spirit. I remember in my, when I was at university, I went to um, uh, uh, it was a, an extraordinary church, it was described uh, in those days as an Anglo Catholic, Charismatic, Evangelical church, uh, and it was all of those things. Uh, because there was a lovely guy, um, Stephen Sykes, who was the vicar, uh, who was um, very Anglo-Catholic. That was his tradition. Uh, but then he went through charismatic renewal in the early 70s. And so uh, he was instrumental in inviting uh, John Wimber and people up to the northeast, And uh, uh, but had an evangelical regard for scripture. So it's this kind of an extraordinary mix of Anglo-Catholicism, evangelicalism, and uh, and and a sort of charismatic, and it was just this amazing sort of blend. And uh, at the time that we were there, it was, um I went to it initially because no students went to it, and I didn't want to go to a student church. Uh, and then because all of this stuff was going on, suddenly it became a student church, so everyone wanted to kind of see what was this kind of crazy church and what was going on. But uh, 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 the bishops didn't like it, and uh, they didn't like it, the fact that it was so, and it was it wasn't perfect and it was messy, but. The Holy Spirit was at work in it, and there were some amazing things uh, going on. And uh, it was just, it was a crazy but lovely place to be. But uh, the bishops didn't like it. And so effectively they shut it down, which was very, very sad and very tragic. But we can do that. We can do that. And um, uh, it's easy to resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, And often in the church, the church has done that because... When we allow the Holy Spirit freedom, sometimes things get messy. Uh, but I always I remember one thing that um, uh, David Pitches said one time. He, he says it's it's like um, uh, he says it's like the, it's like a crash. You know, when you look in on a crash, it looks messy and it looks like there's all sorts of craziness going on. But actually, it's very safe and it's very well ordered. And he used to use that analogy to uh, speak about uh, allowing the Holy Spirit the freedom to be at work in the church. But actually, particularly for church leaders, uh, that's quite a scary place to be, to allow that sort of freedom of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the church. Because sometimes it does look messy and sometimes uh, uh, sometimes there's kind of fleshly stuff that gets mixed up in that uh, but we need to be careful that we don't uh, resist the Holy Spirit when He's wanting to be at work in us and amongst us. And then we can um, end up, we can quench the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, one Thessalonians five, in uh, these um, sort of uh, instructions to the church, as he signs off his letters, says, "Be joyful always. Pray continually." Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. It's very easy, it's very easy to quench the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our midst and in the life of the church. And uh, we can do that in in different different ways sometimes it's simply because we uh we get tired or we become complacent or we become uh we become blase i think particularly in uh in our own context in the sort of uh the context of the church in the west we it's very easy to be to be church uh, in our own strength and with our own with our own abilities uh, you know we can make church function uh, almost without god you know we can do churchy things we can do lots of activities we can be very uh, we can be very busy uh, and actually we can neglect to allow the holy spirit to truly be at work in us and through us and uh, uh, in my own walk as as a christian i can I can do a lot of the things that I do as a christian and a lot and in ministry almost without relying on the Holy Spirit. There are lots of sort of practical things that I can do uh, just in my own in my own strength and with my own resources, but actually that's not, not what I need to be about it's about allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in me and through me, and so I need to be constantly uh, being putting myself in that place of dependence on god and dependence on the holy spirit and deliberately pushing myself out of my comfort zone so that i'm in a place where i can't rely on my own resources but i have to rely on the holy spirit so that that stirs up the holy spirit's fire in me and we need to do that have that sort of same attitude in the life of the church that we're not simply doing the things that we can do because we're a bunch of uh, able able people who have you know gifts and talents that are natural and that we can bring to the you know bring to bear but actually we're we're sort of we're trying to push ourselves out of our comfort zone into a place where we need to be dependent on the holy spirit and where we're constantly asking god's holy spirit to be at work in us and through us that we don't become complacent That we don't get to that place where we become blase, we treat prophecies with contempt as Paul describes it. But we're constantly looking for the fire of the Spirit to be at work in us and to us. And we're encouraging one another in that. And then just finally to go back to um, uh, Ephesians, this uh, second piece of advice in Ephesians that Paul writes to Uh, writes to them that he says, uh, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, be filled with the Spirit. And I'm I'm sure you know that the, um, the tense of the verb that Paul uses is uh, present continuous. In other words, this is not, this isn't a one-off thing. This is not happen- something that happens once and is then not repeated. Uh, the tense of the verb that he uses is this is something that you need to do and then you need to do it again and then you need to do it again and then you need to do it again. Why do you need to be filled with the Spirit again and again and again? Because we grieve the Holy Spirit and we resist him and we quench his fire. We we will do that, and when we do that, then we need to come back to God and say, "Fill me, fill me afresh again." It's one of my uh, continuing prayers: is that God will God will will fill me with His Spirit, because I realise there's nothing that I can do for Him without Him. There's nothing that I can do for Him without Him, and if I really want to make a difference in this world if i really want to impact people's lives for good if i really want people to see the kingdom of god in such a way that their thirst for god is stirred and they begin to hunger after god if i if i really am focused on being a follower of jesus christ becoming someone whose whose life when people look at it speaks of jesus rather than speaks of simon then the only way that that will happen is if my life is filled with the Spirit of God. And if I make my life the kind of place where the Holy Spirit loves to dwell. And in order to do that, I need to make sure that my life is a holy life. And uh, believe you me, my life is not a holy life. But what's my heart's desire? My heart's desire is that it should be a holy life. One of the things when I uh, look back over not just the last um, 25 years, but the last 33 years since I made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, when I look back, one of the things that I see is the cost of following Jesus Christ and the cost of having made that decision uh, to follow him. And actually, there are many times I look back and I think, in some ways, my life might have been it would certainly have been a different, but it might have been easier it might have been more comfortable if I hadn't chosen to follow Jesus Christ. but I made that decision that I would live the rest of my life for him, whatever it cost and so, having made that decision and having kind of reflected on the cost of having made that decision and following him. I don't want to live a life that doesn't make a difference for the kingdom of God. And so if I want to live a life that does make a difference for the kingdom of God, I can't be half-hearted about my pursuit of the things of God. I can't be half-hearted about pursuing holiness in my life. I can't be half-hearted about pursuing uh, 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 pursuing a life that looks... Uh, I don't want to say this, but that looks like Jesus, by which I mean a life that people look at and they don't notice me. They notice something bigger than me because it's Jesus that they see in me. And in the end, this, you know, come Holy Spirit, what is that all about? It's not so that we can have um, toys to play with. It's not so that we can have the gifts that we can uh, you know that we can use that are um, uh, supernatural and are spectacular. I think our, our eyes are always are always drawn, aren't we, to the things that are spectacular and unusual and that look different. But actually, it's about it's about living the life that God has created us to live, and it's about living a life that makes a difference, and it's about living a life. That looks like the life of Jesus. And it's about becoming people who are noticed, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is in us. Uh, One of the, one of the things that I uh, often, uh, often comment on, uh, just in a context of people who lead worship, is that I often say that the, uh, uh, I love it when You have a worship leader who goes unnoticed. When someone leads worship and when you leave, you have forgotten who led the worship because that means you've not noticed them, but you've noticed the Jesus whose attention they were gifted to draw your eye to. And uh, I often say that about worship leaders that the they should be unnoticed and i think that about christian disciples is that actually we should go unnoticed because it's jesus that people notice and the only way that that happens is when the holy spirit comes and we welcome him and he dwells in us and and our lives become bigger than they would have been otherwise in every respect And so I just want to encourage you again, as I'm sure you've been encouraged many times in the past, and as we come to this time of of prayer ministry and praying for one another and welcoming the Holy Spirit, that this is all about allowing God to be God in us so that we become the people that he created us to be, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of this world that is so lost and so in need of God. So I'm going to stop and hand back to Gary and I hope that that's been helpful and um, as I say my most of my life is completely out of control at the moment so um, I came not quite as fully prepared as I might like to have been but I hope that that has helped you and encouraged you this evening.